Welcome to this new episode of Behind the Scenes at Blenheim Palace. This week, I have the enormous pleasure of speaking to two of my colleagues who really do have a unique insight into life at Blenheim Palace. Timothy James and David served as butler and under-butler to the late Duke of Marlborough, and today I'm thrilled to be able to take you behind the scenes to hear what the butlers really saw. Very welcome, and uh, very welcome. And um, this evening, I have two very, very special guests, and they're two gentlemen I've known for a number of years now. Um, we have Timothy James Mayhew and David Green. So, <laughs> Tim and David, you know, welcome, and thank you so much for agreeing to Pleasure. do this. Um, and I wonder if I could ask you to just introduce yourselves and, and tell people what it is you do. So um, the title of this talk is A Gentleman's Gentleman. And it's a little bit of kind of Jeeves and Worcester, um, some people, but but we really want to know the truth now. So Tim, can I start with you? You know, what, what was your job and who, who did you work for? So um, I started in 1977 as a footman and I worked till uh, 1981. Uh, always as a footman to the 11th Duke of Marlborough, the late 11th Duke of Marlborough. I then left at that point to do butlering in other houses. I was away for about 16 years. And then I came back in 96 as the uh, 11th Duke's butler. And mm -hmm. I stayed with him until 2014. Okay, lovely. And what about you, David? Um, so I was employed as a footman for the 11th Duke and Duchess. Um, in 1995, while I was studying um, business studies and hospitality at college. And then when I finished college, I had this row with my mother. She said, when are you going to get a proper job? And at that very point, so it must have been fake, at that very point, the phone rang. And it was uh, Tim's predecessor, um, Patrick Garner, yeah. who said, would you like to come and work at Benham full time? So I quite carefully said, yes, 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 put the phone down. And then replied to my mother, I'm leaving on Monday. And that was it. And I was there. So then I worked full time at Blenheim as under butler um, and then later butler at the Duke and Duchess Summer House between 96 and 99. So yep. I left when I was 21. Um, and I left and did lots of different things, good and bad. But eventually the Blenheim magnet pulled me back. <laughs> and now I do something completely different for Blenheim. Yep. So, uh, and, and and in what? fact, Tim, you're still at Blenheim as well. So yes, as say, I, I I retired from the butlering because the new um, Duke came, 12th Duke, and they kind of have their own team. Mm -hmm. um, so I then moved into the operations side, and I'm now an operations manager, uh, looking after the palace guests and hosts, as in our visitor guests. Lovely. Okay, so what I'm going to do, if I may, um, is just show a very short clip of a film which gives an idea of some of the, the daily duties that um, a butler undertakes. Um, and then I'm going to stop it, and then we're going to talk about what it is we're actually seeing. So, Tim, this is actually a clip of you. It's a, a short film we made some yeah. time ago. Um, so it's let's done see. from behind. It shows my sort of bull patch, really, but that's okay. <laughs> okay, so let's see what you're up to. Hold on. Just get this going at the right place. There we are. We still have that. We still produce our own logs. Inside the house, you would have had chefs and cooks 
uh, you'd have had the pastry chef, you'd have had the bakers, and you'd have had, the, as I say, there would have been a butcher as well in those days. But uh, we're greatly reduced to just a few now that do it all. They're running. Come here, you two. That's that's Thomas, the underbutler, who's just hidden, and that's James, the valet. They're sort of the full-time members. And this is Evelina, who's the housemaid. James looks after Jude's clothes, and um, Tom sort of covers for me. Takes two of us on a house this size. That's number forty-two. I can tell you that without looking. Okay. And that's the back door. So James is going to go and answer it while I carry on. <laughs> um, yeah, that's yeah. So we can always tell which one it is. You don't have to look at them. You learn your bells. They're all different. Sorry, I have got my emergency emergency sleeves. In the house during the day, uh, mornings are always checking the house, the relaying fires making sure bulbs are going, clocks are working, putting in orders with tradesmen. I'm not going to do my whites any of them. I do, the, I do the household accounts. There's wine cellars, obviously, which have to be looked after. Uh, they're checked, and the Duke looks after the purchasing of wine for those. Then I look after the cellar when the wine arrives. So just wash those off. Grace. I'm True Timothy speaking. I'll come along now, you guys. So I just want to stop that at that point because there's so much there. Um, so first of all, it's it's interesting to see your route to work, um, which is a place our visitors don't normally see. So you're going through the undercroft and then That's you go correct. up the stairs. And you end up where? Well, what was that room you were so in? So that, that's a room that's called in between the public side or the state rooms and in uh, the Duke's private area. And um, that's the pantry. So it's kind of in the middle of the palace, really, on the main floor. Okay. Uh, so we could get to both sides. So for having a function on the um, public side that the Duke's going to join or a big event, then we can access through the one side. And if it's just the Duke and his family, we access through the other door where you saw James going through, and that goes through to the Duke's private apartments then. Okay. And yeah. you mentioned a number of things then, um, and we saw you cleaning some silverware. Yes. Now, David assures me that he never, ever saw you clean silverware. Yeah, he, he would do, but then he was probably watching someone else do it as well. So I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure those were your actual arms, if I'm honest. <laughs> Yeah, it they looked were. like they've been put in. But yeah. I was quite impressed to see you cleaning stuff. And Tim, you you placed that silver um, teapot, I think it was, wasn't yes, it? Yes, teapot and a hot water pot. In a, in a wooden sink? Yes. Uh, so the uh, original wooden sinks we used to have, they were um, untreated wood, so they'd swell up. And we used to have to soak them if they'd not been used for a few days. So you'd put a brick inside to weight them down and fill them up with water overnight so the um, joints will seal up so it contains the water. And that's to protect the uh, china and also the glassware from chipping on the edge of things. So like if you, because they're stainless steel things, as you saw. So if you have a stainless steel sink or a porcelain sink, then you could damage stuff as you hit them. But the wooden uh, bowl inside helps to avoid that. 
Okay. Again, you were using typical silver polish. Yes. Uh, Now, I I know that both of you have used tomato ketchup in the past for cleaning. Why why do you use tomato ketchup? Well, as I obviously never clean anything, I'll let David answer that question. Well, the tomato ketchup was for for the copper. But um, there were other things hidden away in the pantry that uh, a typical butler would never mention, such as the silver dip. That was probably more corrosive yes. than, the, uh, than the, uh, the tomato ketchup. So the silver dip we used, a- egg on silver was one of the worst things. Absolute nightmare. So if egg got onto a fork or a spoon, it would be an absolute nightmare. And there was a couple of stories where spoons were left in silver dip overnight. And it's the sort of thing that most butlers would never say they ever use, and it, but it was always hidden at the bottom of the cupboard. It was the perfect thing for getting this sort of black tarnish off of forks and spoons. Uh, what about the time when you uh, left the spoons in overnight? I don't think that was me, actually, Tim. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> yes, that that left a, a permanent uh, a permanent mark on a spoon. I'm sure it was someone else that worked for you. Yeah. Well, the the thing is with the silver dip, if you actually leave it in too long. Um, it, instead of just removing the initial tarnish from an egg or something, it then actually makes the whole piece of silver goes black. It looks like sort of a piece of black iron, and then it has to go to be professionally cleaned. Oh, goodness. Wow. Okay. So, again, I, I just want to draw you back to you worked very closely together, the two of you, at a certain point. Um, and so what was your routine when the family were actually in residence? Because um, the last you spent a lot of time at Blenheim, but he had a, a, a regular routine which took him away from time to time. So what, what were your jobs? David, you, you tell me. What, what well, I, your... I suppose it's best that I start because it was I was earlier getting up than Tim most most days. Um, but I would, <laughs> I would start around, I'd get up around 7am um, and this was the sort of prep, prep for breakfast. So you, the Duke and the Duchess would both have breakfast at 8.30. Um, the Duchess would have breakfast on a breakfast tray it was taken in by one of the housemaids and the Duke was have his breakfast at 8.30 in the, in the Bow dining room. So there was a lot of preparation in terms of, uh, of, of getting that ready. Sort of clearing breakfast about nine o'clock, but it seemed to be like going from one meal to the next. There was, you were always prepping for the next one. So lunch preparation, lots of chores in terms of silver cleaning and um, then off looking around the, the house for light bulbs needed changing. That seemed to be a full-time job for us. We actually What's had that? a light bulb store at Blenheim is probably less used than it used to be mm. but we have every different denomination of light bulb that we used to have to um, hunt around for and then and replace in all sorts of difficult locations. Uh, around 11 o'clock we'd have to do something called the silver order and this was basically going down to speak to the chef to find out what he was cooking for lunch and what silver he required, how we were going to serve this and, and butler service is very different from any sort of cake traditional catering service where everything would be plated and so on. This would always be served on sort of big silver flats. So we'd have have to prepare all of that, make sure that the chef had all of that ready and that would also be heated. Um, lunch was always served at 1.15. So we'd have that um, to do. And then clearing lunch would be around two o'clock, something like that. And then it was on to the next meal. It would be laying the next, you know, the, the table for dinner or laying a tray if it was going to be just, you know, the family and, and then it was the routine of walking dogs. And then it became afternoon tea at five o'clock. It was sort of one, it really was one to another. It's and the snowball. afternoon tea was always a, a, a particular favourite of mine. It was a, a trolley that was about two and a half feet off the ground. And 
Um, normally me, I'd have to wheel this trolley in like Mrs. Overall, all punched <laughs> over into the smoking room and it would have a rattly wheel. So that used to be uh, quite amusing. And then six o'clock clearing that. And then it was again another silver order for dinner. And then it was the dinner service at 8.15. And then if it was just the family and residence, it would be sort of a 9.30, 10 o'clock finish, something like that. And then much, much later if we were doing a dinner party. But it really was one meal to the next, a lot of preparation in between. So, David, you said about getting up and getting breakfast ready. And um, so this question for you, Tim, really. Yeah. So, Apart from preparing breakfast for his grace, would you have to lay out his clothes or do? No. So it, it would really depend. Um, over at, Lee Place was different because the, there was a summer house that they used to go to. And obviously the, um, the palace ran differently. So the, the butler who had been at the uh, summer house, he'd be over as the valet. So he'd be the full-time valet at the palace and would look after all the Jews' clothes. The only occasion when David and I would ever need to put clothes out would be if the Duke um's valet was off for the day, which would be okay. very rare for him to actually be off when the Duke or for any of us to be off when the Duke was actually in residence. So the valet may have, for argument's sake, gone on a, a week's holiday or something. We would then cover that. So that would always be laid out in the dressing room, either the night before um, ready for him or first thing in the morning before he got up. So although his breakfast was 8.30, we would all be starting quite a bit earlier. Um, maybe sort of seven o'clock in the morning, because back in those days, we also had in the winter, there'd be one or two of the fires that needed relaying. Mm -hmm. And also the rooms needed tidying. Um, the newspapers had to be collected from outside the front. Of and the ironed or not? Uh, no ironing. That's uh, that's a bit of a fallacy, the ironing. That was when uh, originally the Times was printed on linen. So they used to iron it. But also um, later on, uh, the ink in newspaper print uh, used to come off uh, so you could set the ink uh, by ironing again um, fortunately with modern technology we didn't have to do that bit um, but uh, and then yes yeah, so we'd go and get the newspaper and occasionally there'd be times when the newspapers weren't delivered and he was a bit of a stickler for wanting his papers to be in you had to put them in the smoking room by eight o'clock so that he could take them into breakfast with him and we used to have to put two of the newspapers actually on the dining room table for him, the two that he'd read during breakfast. And then the others he would collect if he wanted something else. But occasionally you'd have to rush down to the newspaper shop in Woodstock and, and grab them before he got up. Uh -huh. And so how, how did the routine differ when the family weren't in residence? Did you just, you know, disappear or, you know, what, what was the routine? And you, obviously, David would have done. But David disappeared. Um, and, uh, um, I'll let you get that in first. <laughs> uh, it was. It was a really. It's a. There was very few days because they had a set routine. They normally, I think, if I remember rightly, David would agree with this. They tended to leave for London uh, usually um, before or after dinner on a Tuesday, and they'd normally be back on a Thursday. Um, sometimes Friday morning if they were doing something in London on Thursday. So really it only gave two days for all the staff to be off because none of us would ever be off when he was in residence. Um, so 
that left Wednesday and Thursday, but he'd also want one of his butlers or under butlers always to be on duty in case. So David, I think I used to take the Thursday. Did you take the Wednesday? I think you, that's I think how it so, used. Yeah, I mean, we, we, it was one day a week holiday. Yeah, it was a one day a week um, off. Is, yeah. is what we had. So, but it was very much if you if you had the Wednesday, you'd finish service at nine thirty, ten o'clock at night. You'd have to be back at the same time the following day, ready to you know, go yeah the i think we did try and negotiate a day and a half once but we just got the reply but i need you so yeah. <laughs> it kind of it it curtailed that one but then again you did also get six months off in the summer yeah there is that <laughs> how so how come so well I... the it's um i'll let david explain what happened but basically um round about um end of february time the duke would and duchess would go on a, a long extended holiday uh, he used to enjoy playing golf in the golf tournaments and it was at that time that we used to have to basically pack up all their personal possessions in the palace and then we'd move them to the summer house um and david can sort of explain the, the summer house part but then the palace um his grace would always come back to the palace on a daily basis because uh, the secretary still remained at the palace and he would work in the palace and I'd look after him during the daytime. And then he'd go back to David um, at, uh, for usually get back sort of maybe afternoon tea, sort of early evening time for dinner. Yeah, but, I, uh, I would agree with that. I mean, yes, mine was a full time job, Tim. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so well, we, you... the, the summer house was you know, more informal in some respects, but um, you know, an opportunity for the the family really to get away from from the public that were were at Blenheim so it was very very much a, a more private affair so and for the children lunch, lunches outside um oh, lovely. beautiful terrace and so on we would be able to wear summer coats so the uniform slightly different so we'd have lighter coats on but the service was very much the same and what I really enjoyed actually it gave I, I loved being in control I, I loved having this yes. um it was it was my my moment I guess after and he absolutely hated it when I used to have to come over when it was a big dinner party. He hated it for two reasons. One, he couldn't use the pool in the afternoon because I'd catch him. <laughs> <laughs> and the other reason he hated it was um, the Duke wouldn't ask him any questions. He'd always ask me the questions when I used to have to come over and do the bigger dinner parties. It's true. It was an opportunity for you to work for me there. <laughs> <laughs> so talk, talking of, of kind of slightly larger events, um, I'd, you used to work closely with other members of staff um, and particularly the chef. And um, I've got just a little clip that I'd like to share with you that will hopefully stir lots of memories of what it was like to work there at Christmas. Um, so bear with me a moment. Okay. Um, sometimes this has a little mind, mind of its own. Oh, that's that's a real button. This is this uh, <laughs> just, just if you button. just hold there a second. Yeah. Uh, this gentleman in the middle of this picture, the, his name is Edward Wadman. Yeah. Now Edward Wadman, um, he was a land boy during the Second World War, and he actually got shot um, in during the war. And uh, Mar Duchess Mary said that he couldn't go back out on the land and bought him in as a hall boy, and he remained with them for forty two years wow. and then um he uh trained me for my first four years as well and these were italian uh, boys that had taken refuge in india in england uh, after the war and uh, he trained me mr waldman 
And then um, he remained with Patrick, uh, helped him out. And then when I came back in 96, uh, Edward finally, Mr. Wobman finally retired. And can I, I, he, he said one thing I'd never, never ever forgotten. And I've used this phrase multiple times. Um, obviously, Blenheim opened to the public in, in 1950s. And before that, when it was run as a, a, a large family home, um, they would have afternoon tea and coffee at any area of the palace. It could be, you know, half yes. a mile to get from the kitchen yes. to, to where they wanted to take coffee. And he said to me once, he said, the footmen used to have blood between their toes by the end of the day. Oh, and, and I'm not sure that was entirely true, but, but they really did have to cover it was, a huge amount of money. It was hard work. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so th thank you for that. Um, so uh, the next slide, um, I'd say, is a. I just want to show you a little snippet about Martin Brost, who was the chef while you were both there, um, and about his recollection of um, Christmas at Blenheim. Christmas. Yeah, I'll just just let me get to the right point. There we go. Whoops. Christmas is a great time here, actually. It's a lot of fond memories of Christmas. Obviously, when I came here, my kids were five and seven. Um, so, yeah, I had I had many vivid memories of waking and setting an alarm for five o'clock Christmas morning. Um, I swear, and I was the only father in land who was waking his kids up when all the other fathers were telling their kids to go back to bed. I was kind of gritting my teeth and waking my kids up, saying, come on, kids, it's five o'clock. So the kids could open their presents. We'd come up here for about seven o'clock in the morning. The kids would come up with us. They'd be parked in the staff room with their toys and, and what have you. Christmas lunch is a traditional Christmas, Christmas lunch. They'll have a, a, a pate to start. Um, and then you roast turkey and all the trimmings, Christmas puddings, brandy sauce, so on. And that's, that's obviously every Christmas lunch, that's the same. Generally about 12, 15 people, something like that. And then at, at night, we use the saloon. It's the, it's the one night of the year that the, the Duke, as a, as a, a, you know, for a private function, uses that saloon for um, for himself and for t to do a, a dinner party. I mean, that can be anything from sort of twenty to forty people. There'll be, you know, a, a honey glazed ham and, and, and roast beef, roast lamb, plenty of game. Again, selection of game: teal, woodcock, snipe, uh, grouse, partridge. Once the Duke's finished, he, he'll, he'll sort of tip me the wing to clear, so we clear all the buffet off. And then we're generally finished by around about, well, I'm normally finished around about midnight, Christmas night. Um, the butlers can be here till two o'clock in the morning. So thank you, Martin. It's lovely to see that clip again. And I love that last remark. I finish at about midnight. The butlers are generally here till about two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. What were you doing? <laughs> we were often preparing for the next day. Christmas was... Um, it was a very interesting time. I mean, it was it was very hard work, but it was good fun. Um, and Martin's absolutely right. We would be in very early in the morning. Um, there wouldn't really be a break on Christmas Day, but the the family was kind of different on that day. It was more um, there was there's the, the formality was there, but there was also a sort of a a little bit of a bridge over that. So, for instance, on the on the actual christmas day lunch it's the only time when um when we served the actual christmas pudding that was on fire which was also a nightmare as well because it's <laughs> silver and, and uh, there was quite a few uh, dangers involved with that oh uh, it's the only time when we used to wear um a, a christmas sort of hat and the <laughs> the duke looked disapproving but he never said anything because it's the kind of only time you could get away with something like that <laughs> 
And then the Chris, as Martin says, um, we were all in early. And my daughter, who's now, uh, she's 36. Unfortunately, when you grow up doing something as a child, it never goes away. So my daughter still gets us all up at that time in the morning. And we all have to meet at one of my family's houses and we open our presents in the morning. Uh, I'm still looking forward to sleeping in one Christmas. <laughs> well, I think like with, like with many jobs, you know, when you get home, you just don't want to go straight to bed. So, you know, when we, when we say two o'clock in the morning, we mean Tim and I used to go down into yes. what was the china room yep. uh, well it still is the china room actually if you go on yes. a private apartment tour you can actually access these areas um, and many years ago there used to be a table tennis table yep. in the middle of the china room so to, to un unwind after a busy shoot um, uh, we used to have a bit of fun and we used to uh, play table tennis for you know an hour or so at the end of a, a shooting party or end of christmas just to de-stress it was it was great fun but the, I, I would like to emphasize here that it, it, it is the China room and it did have all the China on the wall. And every now and again, a, a ping pong ball would um, deflect off the China. But I have to say that this is a collection of damaged China that has belonged to generations of previous members of the family. So it wasn't actually quality or in use. And we so, did not break anything, Tim. Did and we, we didn't know, absolutely, no. we didn't break anything either. <laughs> And what, just going back to Christmas Day and, you know, being ever practical and I, I'm a bit of a feeder myself, um, when did you eat? Um, I don't, I don't remember. Oh, we used to get, um, our lunch was always at midday. So mm. the chef would have prepared us a lunch. And I think we used to have, um, he used to do like two lots of, well, three lots of sort of the Christmas lunch because obviously you'd have to do theirs and then really uh, during the rest of the we'd, so we'd have quite a good lunch um, bearing in mind we had to get through a Christmas lunch ourselves albeit two courses and then back upstairs to serve theirs at one so there was a, a, an element of sort of eating a bit quick and also sometimes either David or I would get called away because obviously with the family in particularly the younger members of the family that were there then they would be shouting down the stairs for things. So it was very sort of um, touch and go as to how much time you get at that. And then in the evening, you'd try and just, what we used to do is when we cleared the saloon buffet, because um, that was a buffet for Christmas dinner, uh, what used to happen then was Martin would leave a selection of the stuff on the table. And at that point, when the family had gone to play games or one of us would stay looking after the drinks and or a couple of us, and then we'd swap over with the other two, very much like it was in the sort of, ancient, you know, centuries ago uh -huh. where you'd always have a couple on duty and then swap over so you could eat later on in the day um, can you remember can we... anything about that David it was quite a long day wasn't it for that it, it, it was a huge long day I remember that we, we always we always tried to have fun I mean that was the most important yeah, thing we did but in whatever in whatever we did so you know Tim and I were constantly um <laughs> uh, probably winding each other up and teasing each other in order to get the best laugh so as much as we had this very professional job to do and we had to be incredibly organized and prepared yes um, it, it really was a great a great time and great fun so we did the yeah. hours were not a problem for us at all so sorry so, so one of the things that um happens during a meal is um between the main course and the um sweet uh you have to clear off all the savory items like the salt the pepper the cruets change any ashtrays that may have been used at that point um and um 
I used to, to it was, it's a long sort of process. So you top up their glasses of drink first. And then I would, just before we went in the dining room, I would tell David a, a, a joke that he um, couldn't help laughing at. Uh, and we get to the dining room table and the guests make quite a lot of noise, so they don't actually hear. And then I would um, just whisper the punchline under my breath and he would try and control himself. But I think David could also mention the other thing I used to do to the tray as well. Yeah, I mean, the, we, during this sort of clearing process, once the cruet had gone, um, generally when, when dinner parties had gone quite a long time, there'd be the gentleman left at the table and ultimately we'd want to get all the glasses off and away and cleared. So we'd have this, this quite large tray and Tim would reach in for a couple of glasses, either come in and tell a joke or he would tell me how much that he thought the glass was worth. And by the time we got halfway around the table, we'd had quite quite a valuable set of glasses on this thing. And he said, if you drop this, you're fired, just so you know. And he would keep adding this up as we went along. So there was lots of, uh, lots of fun that we had, lots of fun we had. And I'd push down a little bit hard on my glass if I was putting it on the tray. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I'm amazed you two are still here. Um, so this, this next um, slide, it's got three menus on it. Um, yes. And the, the one on the right is the Christmas menu. Yeah. Um, and, and can you explain about the little cards that they're on and, and you know, what sort of thing there was? Yeah. Uh, so the, the cards are the double M um, Marlborough uh, M uh, with the coronet on. And uh, basically the card is um, the coronet and the double M that's like raised gold leaf. And then the edges have got a gold leaf on as well. That's not very clear on there. Um, that I would say that's possibly just a little bit bigger than they really were. Mm -hmm. And then um, Caroline used to have to type them because the density of the card, they don't go for any printers and they still have to be hand typed or handwritten today. And um, David, I think you can explain about what they used to go into as well when they were on the table. Yeah, so again, I'm, I've actually got one in front of me, so you can see sort of rough, oh, it's not going to show up because of the background, but you can see roughly the sort of size of these. Um, and as Tim said, they, these used to sit normally in between two and four places, depending on how big the tables are, on these beautiful solid silver double M's. Um, th this wasn't for everyday use, this was for special dinner parties. Yeah. So if we had a white cloth dinner, then we would probably have menus printed. We'd have some important guests coming. Um, and sometimes things tend to go wrong. And I, I know that, um, you know, with a white cloth, I think we've got a great story actually to tell about. Yes. Um, one, one evening where we were serving soup. I don't think soup, oh, this cream of leek and potato soup, that's Christmas. But where we had to serve soup uh, one evening on a white tablecloth, we, we had these solid silver bowls that used to sit on these wonderful solid silver flats, all with, with the, the crest at the top of them. And it was very difficult um, without properly looking to see when a bowl was on top of a plate. So Tim, do you want to carry on the story about this? Yes. This so, we're um, off the hook on this story. Yes, we're, we're not to blame. And the person who did this will remain nameless. So basically what happens is you, um, Normally, you can, if you're really skilled, you can take two of them, but they're so hot that it's best to actually take one. Um, so we'd done the usual um, 
two so the leading lady the duke and then the lady on the duke's left had already received her soup bowl but unfortunately one of the footmen who was doing a sort of a one-on-one hadn't actually seen or realized that she had a, a soup bowl already in front of her so he put a bowl of soup in her bowl of soup and which was fine because it kind of floated gently <laughs> but every time <laughs> every time she put a spoon in you just heard this sort of noise and and the soup just came the, of the lower bowl just came out of the edges so when we and the thing is you can't intervene at that point so she finished her sort of soup and then we were able to lift off both soup bowls together onto a tray uh, but she had a lovely sort of ring of um soup a perfect ring of this uh, sort of soup pea soup uh, on her it's a, it's on a, a really difficult one isn't it because you know our the job as a butler is very much to plan organize everything and be one yeah. step ahead you know, yes. contingency planning was is something that's i think still instilled into us you know i i don't go on a plane with a white shirt without a spare one still in my hand luggage yeah. it's just something that i still do it's 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 strange and when but, something goes wrong like that something as drastic and as obvious as that it's quite difficult to recover but it's amazing how well we did recover yeah so basically it's a, a case of um you can't take the whole tablecloth off so it's a case of a very quick keying down and then you get a, a very good quality linen square napkin, about a two and a half feet square napkin. And you, you actually lay that over the square of the sort of stain on the tablecloth and then you relay her place setting and it kind of disappears then. No, I must say, even today, I, I, I can't think of a specific example, but I've certainly been in the office when something's happened and it's been, go and ask Tim, he'll know what to do. And it's, it's a kind of, you know, how do we hide this? How do we mend this? So, as you say, it obviously stays with you. Yeah, um, we do try and keep all those sort of things behind the sort of uh, green baize door. But occasionally they uh, a little gremlin slips out. So we have to deal with it there and then. So we've looked at Christmas. I, I'm yeah. now going to go on to another special event uh, that I know that you were both involved in. Yes. Um, and... Oh, we'll leave that one for the, the time being. Um, but this was a very special wedding ceremony that, yes. that you both worked on. And yeah. can I just point out, because people won't recognise you. Um, so the 12-year-old on the far right of the screen <laughs> is David. And third from the left, crouching down so that he's not towering above the groom, is Tim. <laughs> yes. So... Um... This I I'll I'll tell you about this picture and David can sort of tell you about the uh, the event because he uh, was involved uh, quite a lot with that as well. Uh, it was a very interesting um, event. So as you can see, it's Sylvester Stallone and it was uh, on his wedding. Um, and Buckingham Palace they they do a five day week and they do a set hours, but they obviously sometimes had to work maybe two weeks solid at a time, but then they get um, their time off all in sort of one lump and um her majesty is very um happy for them to do events outside of the um palace um freelancing if you like to earn extra money and um so i often was able to use them and i actually uh, particularly robert on on the left there um my left as you look at the screen yeah oh. my yeah, yeah. sorry okay yeah. The, the taller chap no that's no robert who is to his that's Robert yeah okay, nice. uh, and so he was um he was uh, a butler that went on to work in another house that I worked in we both ended up in the same house um but they come from Buckingham Palace and so we hired all Buckingham Palace butlers but in that particular picture 
which um, the photographer didn't want to take, but uh, Mr. Sloane insisted that we had that photograph taken. But I had to duck down slightly to be at the same height as his wife because they didn't want someone quite next to him that was looking taller. Uh, David, fortunately, is naturally short, so he didn't have to crouch down at all. That thanks to yeah, there's there's also some some missing photographs from here as well. You know, in the excitement of, of meeting someone as well known as him, and, and I really grew up with all the Stallone movies, Rambo and so on. You know, and it's it's not professional, and Tim and I would never have you know asked for an autograph of anyone. We actually played it quite cool. Yeah. Um, it, it, we think we did anyway um, to their faces. But at this particular point, after a, a, a long service. Um, and being asked to be in a photograph with him as part of the wedding photos, um, we got quite confident, me in particular. So there was one photograph where I was behind too confident. with my hands on his shoulders peering over, and at which point, um, which Tim reminded me today, at which, which point he grabbed the cake knife and put it to my throat. And there's another picture of that somewhere. So it was great fun. They, and they were absolutely, you know... They were lovely. They were wonderful guests. So um, that's one sort of special event, but... This um, this is a, a lovely old photograph of the tenth duke. So yes. um, uh, and and the tenth duchess on the left. Yes. So the mother and father of the duke um, and duke that you both worked for. Yeah. And it's Ascot, which was a huge, huge mm. thing. Mm. Um, and this is a more up to date photograph. So there's Martin, um, the chef again, and you, Tim. Yes. You know, tell me about Ascot because it was such a big deal. Ascot was. Um... It was a lovely thing to do, but it was a logistic nightmare. Mm -hmm. um, the um, the Duke hadn't invested in good vehicles. Um, we always had to use the older vehicles. Um, we did eventually um, convince him to get some shelter because there had been occasions at Ascot, and I think David was around with me at the time before that he, he'd left by the time we managed to get marquees. But we would... Um, have to be um, serving and you know we couldn't wear have an umbrella on because we were using both hands to serve so they'd be sitting at these little square tables which you can see on the right of the screen outside in the open and it'd be pouring with rain and they'd have umbrellas up the smoked salmon would be dissolving the wine would and it was just, it was like it was like a classic sort of Coleman's mustard advert it's as if there was no rain at all life just carried on as absolute normal um, so we used to pack up both the Land Rovers and um, with absolutely everything that was needed. Um, however, on one particular occasion, we'd forgotten the homegrown peaches. And um, Martin, who you can see at the front of the picture, he had to send his son, uh, bring his son at the palace to get him to bring down a tray of peaches. And believe it or not, we actually managed, um, and this is the number one enclosure, so no one can get in there without sort of really, you know, displaying credentials and ticketing and everything. Somehow Martin's son managed to blag his way through at least two security cordons to get into the number one enclosure. And um, all the, the only thanks we really got from the Duke at the time was, well, I hope they're not bruised in that rush down, <laughs> down to Ascot. But I think also um, David will be able to tell the, the story about the Ascot and um, having a, the accident, the unpredicted accident in the uh, Land Rover. 
Oh yeah, we did have a, a major blowout, a major blowout on the M25 um, on on the way back. So we were lucky to be here actually today. But actually, I don't want to dwell on that too much. I'm just seeing the peach boxes there, and I think is it, it for, for those that they, don't know, Blenheim actually grow there. those peach. Yeah, they're, yes. they're the peach yeah. box in a in a fairly sort of normal you know fruit box. There's nothing special about that. And the eleventh, it was very particular about these peaches, and they're actually grown on the estate very, very carefully and very brilliantly by our, our gardening team. And it was often when we had a, a very um, important dinner, there's a, there's a course called dessert. And dessert is not traditionally what we'd all assume as dessert, which would be the pudding or whatever. This would be, uh, in effect, a gilded knife, fork and spoon with a finger bowl. And you would have a fruit course. So you'd offer... All served course. on gold. A absolutely. And... Normally, we'd serve everything from silver, but because these peaches couldn't be touched by human hand, they were dropped straight from the tree into cotton wool within the box. And we would yep. offer that box around. It's very difficult to manoeuvre that box, I can tell you. But we'd offer that box up to the guests and they would help themselves. But they, they couldn't be touched by human hand before serving. And do you, do you remember if the if His Grace saw someone's hand go towards the peach and if it so much as got within static electricity distance of that peach you go you've touched it you've got to take that one <laughs> he, and there's and he wouldn't let us he wouldn't let us let them have another one that that was it they had to have the one they touched quite right too now, um so we're going to move on again um and you've you've dealt with you know, endless numbers of VIPs in your time. And Tim, I think Princess Margaret is a particular favourite of yours. Yes. Um, she's, she, she's always, I, out of, when I first met her, um, which was back in the early days when I first was a footman here, she, uh, out of all the royals I've met, in fact, out of many people that I've met, she is the, the, one of the nicest people I've ever met. Um, I've been, you know, when they've, in private and uh, there's been no guests around and I've gone in and, and taken her a, a drink that she's wanted. She's would just talk to me. Um, very intelligent, multiple languages, mm -hmm. absolutely lovely person and just so easy going. And also uh, like with us, she's aware of like when that formality needs to be there and she naturally goes into it. But some people, they're like it all the time. And it's almost like she never did it in a way that made her think that she's better than anyone else. She was always just so natural with it and so accommodating when you was around. I mean, she really was nice. And of course, you know, she spent a lot of time with the um, late Duke in his early years as well. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I, I was really, I really did like Princess Margaret. Yeah, I think I, I would second that as well. You know, a royal visit was something that we, we always looked forward to at Blenheim. This was this was Blenheim with bells and whistles, and we really pulled out all the stops. Timings became timings for timing's sake, and it was absolutely incredible. And and Princess Margaret, Margaret, I only met her twice, but on the second occasion. Um, somehow she she remembered all of our names. She knew exactly yes. who we were, um, and she was absolutely incredible, incredible lady. And uh, I think with the help of Tim, I think I remembered what drink she liked. She she drank. I can't exactly remember. It was something barley water with mixed with something else. Yeah. And I remember when when she arrived, she was we were just serving a drink, and His Grace said, 
would you like a whiskey? And she said, absolutely not. And I, I reeled off this barley water and something drink. She's absolutely David. I'll take that. And, uh, <laughs> and I remember the Duke looking at me saying, how dare you get it right? But um, I think that was part part of our job. The Duke had known her sort of like 30 years and you'd met her twice. I don't think he was that happy. (laughs) (laughs) Just again, just to go back to the slide, the the back of the person that you can see there is Sean Connery. And he filmed at Blenheim a couple of times. And um, we we were speaking earlier about all the other celebrities and, and, and people that that you met and politicians um as I say celebrities um, and you've i mean Winston Churchill was born at Blenheim and obviously that was before your, he died before you started there yes. so he's a prime minister we were familiar with um and we had Margaret Thatcher visit and I believe Ted Heath Edward Heath came as well absolutely um, and that was that was a that was a wonderful dinner actually um and Sadly, Ted Heath was was he was quite elderly at the point he visited Venom, uh, certainly when I was working there, and uh, he he fell asleep um, just as we were serving the the, the pudding, and um, so not to make a big fuss, you know, in and probably in the sort of typical unwritten butler rules, um, I just put enough pressure on the leg of the chair in order to move it swiftly enough in order to wake him up oh, so he could join the conversation. But absolutely fantastic man, you know, Lady Thatcher as well, another wonderful guest. You know, it was absolutely fantastic time for us, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to be part of the family and part of um, the furniture of Blenheim in, in that environment is absolutely incredible. Yeah, we, indeed. I miss it quite a lot. Yeah, oh. I second that. Yeah. Well- can I, I think, you know, <laughs> Okay, so I'm going to cut, I'm going to step in here. So this is um, where David was, um, believe it or not, 21. And um, he was due to leave us. And he decided he was going to have some pictures for his memoirs that um, no one else would ever have. And um, he's um, kind of doing an 11th Duke uh, pose in the uh, the. Duke's chair there because he thought it'd be the only chance that he'd ever uh, get to um, have his photo taken in that way. Would that yeah. be correct, David? <laughs> that, that, that is correct. And I have to say, um, these, these have never been seen before. In fact, it was quite nice when Antonio asked us to do this talk to dig out some of these old photographs. Yeah. Um, and I will Brought say, some memories. Some, someone did say to me, you, you eventually grew into your ears, David, which I, I thought was quite amusing. <laughs> But this this room, the smoking room here, again, if you, if you take a private apartment talk when, when hopefully lockdown ends and we can all enjoy that. This is a fantastic room. We've got so many memories here. Yeah. Just through that door there is the Bow dining room. And when it was just um, the Duke and the Duchess for dinner, they would mm. have dinner on trays here. So much, much simpler. We wouldn't lay the table for dinner and they would have trays in front of the TV. So his grace would sit in that chair and the Duchess would be just just on the left hand side. And Tim and I would wait outside of the... Of, We'd in the sit in the bow dining listening room. Listening for a bell. Tim, do you want to take over? Yes. Um, so we'd listen for a bell, which would, um, when we're sitting on the other side. Now, unfortunately, um, every now and again, um, very rare, um, when we were laying up the trays, the Duke would have the bell and the Duchess would have her own little things. And we would, or I, or David, whoever was doing it, we'd forget to put the bell on. And um, very often as not, um, instead of just calling us or, or anything, 
he would um the duke would go tingling tingling ling <laughs> and we'd walk in there and the duke would be there doing this as if he had a bell in his hand going tingling ling and then we'd uh, quite sometimes we remembered just in time and we'd just slip it in quietly and put it on the tray and sort of get a sideways look from him but uh, yeah we did used to forget that on strange enough it was i suppose we were a little bit more relaxed when yeah. they were just in on their own as opposed so there was kind of little things that happened but to when it's actually formal and guessing i think we we you know we were more kind of sharp well that leads me on you know because i think the picture you painted just then of you know the two of you waiting and the I'm not going to say informality because I don't think that's quite the correct word, but it was more relaxed. And I, I know, I know what a blow it was uh, when the late Duke died. Mm. Um, you know how devastating it was. But how would you have described your both of you? How would you describe your relationship um, with what was your employer in in a unique job? Um, it was. It's kind of difficult to explain because he was, he had like a, what people saw and mm. um, what we knew. So we were quite um, defensive of in the way um, people would say things. And it was upsetting sometimes because people say things based on the way he, they saw his behavior or perceived him. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that was to do with the fact that he, he didn't really have a lot of self-interest golf was his one love mm. and his, his second one was Blenheim mm. and some of the things he did people thought well, that's but he did them genuinely whether rightly or wrongly genuinely believing that they were right for Blenheim mm. but there was things that he did also um that people never saw um I had um I had an accident my back had gone mm. and um I didn't say anything. And uh, one evening when I was serving him, uh, sort of doing a low down sort of tray mill, I'd already been to the doctor. He said to me, he, I, I stumbled a little bit. He said, what's wrong? And I said, well, my back's playing up. And um, I won't go through the whole story, but basically my doctor rang me up and said, oh, there's an appointment for you. I ended up in Harley Street and um, panicked about the bill because mm -hmm. everyone had to pay before they left. But because uh, it's at the time also when National Health were referring people to private hospital. And um, I um, I just kind of didn't dawn on me. And then when I got back home, it, I realized that it was him. His grace had done it. Mm -hmm. And so the next day when he came in for dinner on Thursday night, I went in and I said, oh, excuse me, Grace. And he said, oh, no, no, gentlemen, don't talk about things like that. Which was, And that's how he was with us. He, yeah. he was very protective of us. Mm -hmm. And... You could have an argument with him, yeah. As long as you had an argument, and but then it was done. There was no c carrying on or crying yeah. about it the next day. He'd just pop his head round the pantry. I think you remember this, David. If you'd sort of had a bit of a fallout, which happens when you're that close yeah. to people the whole time, you know, we're with him twenty four seven. Uh, he'd pop his head round the pantry door and go, "Everything all right?" And if you didn't <laughs> say yes at that point, he couldn't. He couldn't stand people that would carry on. A grudge or or disagreement. Okay. Yeah, that I, I that was the end of it. I completely second that, and I and and a similar story during a shoot where I I sprained my ankle. I tripped up at the bottom of the pantry stairs holding some gravy, and Martin said to me, 
rather than make the, make the Duke wait for his gravy, he went, just wait there. And he grabbed the gravy boat off me, ran up the stairs, gave it to Tim, went to the diner, then came down. I sprained it quite badly. And, you know, it was it was the, the 11th Duchess who who bandaged my ankle and she drove me oh. to Woodstock surgery. And, yeah. she, you know, it's, you're part of the family and you really are treated. And we're, we're not just saying that. I think, you know, and I really do say it was a special time for us. And we, we I, I certainly miss that environment. I think it's a, mm. um, a truly special job. Yeah. Well, it, it must be. Uh, can I... Um, We've probably just got time for a couple of questions, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. Um, and again, I think, you know, I could listen to you two all evening, but we, you know, perhaps we'll do a part two. Um, well, David's the one that was, I didn't use to be able to get the word in edgeways, but um, <laughs> he's, he's got a bit older now, so he's not, I can keep up with him now. <laughs> okay, so um, we have a question, a couple of questions from Wendy Williams. Um, the first one, what makes a boy want to become a footman or a butler rather than a footballer or pilot? Um. So, I mean, did, did you actually set out? Was that your aim in life, either of you? Well, in my particular case, no. Um, mine was completely accidental. Um, I originally was going to go in the army. Um, I'd already qualified in some degree. But then because of my family background, it was I was advised against joining the army. Um, so I then went to college to do craft design technology with business study. I passed all those exams was going to get a teaching job in woodwork in woodwork but by then we weren't required so as a temporary basis I thought I'd take the most ridiculous job going in the world I saw a little advert that said um footman required ring da, 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 da. and um I rang the number it was Blenheim uh, I thought I'll do it for six months um not interested I got here didn't want it wasn't interested um six months later I stayed for four years <laughs> so it just became part of me it's yeah, just kind me, of for me it was fate i mean i think a lot of these things are i mean yeah absolutely I college if my lecturer hadn't worked at blenheim part-time i actually wouldn't be sat here today in no. a different role but i wouldn't be sat here today so yeah you know it's, it, and it gets under your skin i do it's a blenheim magnet you know there's so many people yeah. that that um, have worked for blenheim and, you know tim's been at blenheim for so many years but there's people that have been at blenheim even longer it's yeah. a, absolute special place to work it really yeah. is okay um thank you gentlemen there's a question from debbie millard um when you had a dinner party were there any foods that you couldn't serve and then um so, and did you have any unusual requests and what happened if you had 13 for dinner so i'll do the food and david can do the 13 <laughs> is that all right david sounds good tim okay so um there was never any foods that we couldn't serve. Um, if, if foods were available, um, lots of it was grown on the palace. Uh, we would bring up stuff from uh, the coastline, uh, fresh things from the coastline. We'd bring uh, stuff down from Scotland. Um, and um, in the early days, we used to be able to get access to it. So there's nothing that we couldn't actually serve. There wasn't any restrictions. Uh, and... Um, the Duke actually wasn't, it was certain things he didn't like cooked in certain ways. But other than that, there was nothing that we couldn't actually serve. Yeah, there's interesting things as well. So, you know, 
uh, that you that differ from sort of catering to to butler service. You know, if you yes. serve whole fish, you'd serve that with two forks. Yeah. You know, if you had pate, you'd have hot spoons. Spoons. So one yeah. butler with a a spoon. You know, try not to burn burn the guests, but you know, <laughs> spoon in a jug, and then you take it out to scoop out the pate. There was lots. And of it was things. it was a combination of things as well, wasn't it? So like the pates would be with sauterne, the oysters would be with vodka, um, the portages would be with like a heavy sherry, the consommes again would be with a vodka. So it's also, it wasn't so much what we couldn't serve, it's what we had to serve with things, a combination of things. Well, I think uh, that, that, uh, this comes actually to a story about trying to serve a souffle really quickly. Um, and, and just quickly, <laughs> yes. you know, just, just to give it an idea of scale, and I'm hoping that most people are watching of, have been to Blenheim. If they haven't, they need to come to Blenheim uh, <laughs> just to see just how vast um, and beautiful this house is. But, you know, the, the distance between the kitchen and the dining room, even with a souffle, we have, you've probably got 30 seconds before this whole thing deflates. Um, so it was too, it was too slow to put the souffle up into the dumb waiter. We had to absolutely engineer this whole process with getting the plates on quick with thumbs up between the kitchen communication to the butlers. And then, drive the souffle and I think 19 seconds Tim is, is yeah so we used to basically just get the whole table stripped off get everyone into various positions and then the signal would go down to the chef the chef's kitchen pool to come out put the thumb up to the window where I was I'd signal to the guy down in the pantry with my thumb he'd grab the plates out the hot plate we'd run in the dining room put the plates down and then the two guys coming up the stairs would bring two souffles each. We had to get them to the, so that's across a courtyard base, uh, an enclosed courtyard from the kitchen, up a flight of stairs, through a pantry, along a corridor, into the dining room. We'd then grab a souffle each and we'd then sit, uh, we'd then go to the table at 12 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 3 o'clock. I'd nod my head and we got 19 to 30 seconds for that person to pick up the spoon on the side, put it in the souffle. And then we could breathe a big sigh of relief because it would go down. But after that, it was their problem. 30 seconds and it would have been our problem. And, and to quickly answer the question, just for the sake of time, um, about 13, we could never have 13 at the table. So we always laid an extra place for a teddy bear. <laughs> yeah. And that's true. We always had to do yeah. that. Okay, and then one final question, um, and I know the answer to this, I think, um, but I'm going to ask it to you anyway, and just, it might be something for you to think about in the future. Have either of you ever written a book? I don't think David and I could write a book that would be published. <laughs> I don't know. It's, um, I think it'd make an interesting combination if we both did it together. Um, I thought I'd write a sitcom. I and mean, now I was wanting to write a sitcom, if I'm honest. <laughs> I think David and I have always said in the past, if we actually wrote the actual true things and, and some of the things that happen, we actually think people would think of it as a work of fiction. Well, it seems to me that being a butler is hard work, but quite a lot of fun. I wonder when the book will be out. Better watch this space. Well, if you've enjoyed this episode, then do share it with your friends and subscribe so that you get a reminder each week when the new episode is out. Next week, at the same time, I'll be chatting to you about odd men and necessary women. 
and some of the other servants employed below stairs at Blenheim Palace. I do hope you'll join me.